1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, My name's Chris Davey. I'm the Charles E. Scheidt Visiting uh, Assistant Professor of Genocide Studies and Genocide Prevention at the Strasser Center uh, for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Clark University. And I'm very pleased to welcome today... Uh, professor Susan Allen. Uh, Susan's an Associate Professor of Conflict Analysis and Resolution and she's with the Jimmy and Rosalind Carter School for Peace and Conflict Resolution and I believe you're also the Director of the Centre for Peacemaking Practice as well.
2: Indeed, yes.
1: Excellent and that's all at George Mason University. Uh, so welcome Susan, it's great to have you here.
2: Thank you, thank you. appreciate the opportunity to talk.
1: <laughs> Very good. Uh, So we're here today to talk about your recent book, uh, Interactive Peacemaking, a People-Centered Approach, uh, and this is published this year by Routledge Studies in Peace and Conflict Resolution. Um, So before we get talking about the book, it'd be helpful for our listeners to know a little bit more about yourself. I was wondering if you might introduce yourself, tell us a bit about your career, and importantly, why you chose to work in peace and conflict studies.
2: Okay, well, yeah, I grew up. Um, I grew up here in the United States, in the Washington D.C. area, and um, as a coming of age as a teenager in the 1980s, s, uh, the Cold War was was um, on everyone's mind, and um, there was a American girl, Samantha Smith, who wrote to Andropov and asked him why why is there this Cold War. And Andropov invited Samantha Smith and her parents to visit the Soviet Union and they toured the Soviet Union and they met lots of Soviet, um, children. And, and then later, um, uh, Samantha and her family were back in the United States and she and her father died in a plane crash. And she, uh, had been planning to come to a summer camp that I was going to be going to. Um, and her mother in, in, you know, part of dealing with you know the grief of losing her husband and her daughter, she started a Samantha Smith Memorial Exchange that brought girls from the Soviet Union to that summer camp here in the U.S. And um, I was at that summer camp and met met these Soviet girls and and had this vision of you know Samantha's dream of why why do our countries need to be in a cold war? And I thought, well. Um, what can I do? And so we were there with, I think it was, um, you know, 25 or so Soviet girls and 25 or so American girls um, uh, hanging out, you know, playing soccer and, you know, doing things you do at a summer camp um, and not doing a lot of talking because we didn't speak each other's languages. And I decided I better learn Russian that, you know, how are we going to understand each other if we don't uh, don't speak each other's languages. So, so that was in the beginning of my sense of, you know, individuals can, can do something to make a difference. And for me, I chose to study Russian in college. Um, and, and that, uh, you know, even when the governments are, uh, very hostile and, and, um, not a lot of communication happening in constructive ways at the government level, individuals can, can have basic communication. Um, so, so that's how I got started as a teenager, I guess.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, it, you know, the, the people-centered approach of the book really sort of speaks back through to those roots that you've just shared with us. That's quite, quite fascinating. Um, okay, well, we're here to talk about the book. So perhaps in a few words, if you could just briefly give us some top-level uh, description of what the book is about.
2: Well, yeah, I've got it here in the subtitle of a people centered approach. You know, I take a look at, at the interactive peacemaking uh, processes, and we've had so much focus on processes and structures and and kind of models and frameworks of um, how to, to build interactive conflict resolution processes and, and how to do peacemaking. Um, and a lot of focus on kind of the big pictures of these processes and structures and, 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 big picture dynamics. And I wanted to put the people back in the picture, uh, because I've worked with, uh, people who've made a big difference, you know, for all of our theories and frameworks and kind of process dynamics that we outline, people can make a big difference in going from, um, hostile discussions to building trust and having, having, uh, confidence building and able to, to come to some mutual understandings that people make a difference in that. So so I guess the point of the book is is that we've got both the processes and structures and also people that are part of how interactive peacemaking works. Um, and I don't want us to forget the people part. So, mm. so that's why the people are right there on the cover.
1: Mm. Fantastic. So a lot of the book, not all of it, but much of it is focused on history and conflict uh, around Georgia and South Ossetia. For those who might not be familiar, um, perhaps you could tell us briefly about the parties and their perspectives around this conflict, and then also what your role has been during your time there.
2: Um, so, so Republic of Georgia in the South Caucasus, um, the, the the Georgians uh, would say that that South Ossetia is part of Georgia. Um, but the South Ossetians, say no we're, we're independent um, and they do have de facto control over over South Ossetian territory now uh, so so the Georgians are looking for territorial integrity and the South Ossetians are looking for their independence um, and so that's the standoff of you know what is the status of South Ossetia um, my role uh, has kind of evolved over the over time from when I was a graduate student, I was studying conflict resolution at, at George Mason university. I did my master's and PhD here also. Um, when I was a grad student, I traveled with our then director of, of the conflict resolution program, Kevin Clements. We went to Tbilisi and to Sohumi and looked at Georgian and Abka's conflict and would it be possible to, um, have some sort of a constructive, um, Conversation across that divide uh, that was in in the 1990s, and so that's how I got in got connected to that region, and I just kept going back. <laughs> so I went from being, you know, a student uh, assisting the director of the program um, to then later doing my dissertation research, looking at Georgian Abkhaz and Georgian South Ossetian uh, peace processes. I also looked at Moldovan Transnistrian peace processes. Uh, and then from that role of being the, the doctoral student doing the dissertation I um, I got involved really as a as a um, facilitator and convener as doing action evaluation on different conflict resolution processes in the region and so I got very much involved as a practitioner too so not just a scholar but but a scholar practitioner um, and then I stayed involved I had um, some years where I didn't travel to the region when I had young children um, but of been going back and forth fairly regularly for 25 years now.
1: Yeah, so I, I wanted to explore that a little bit more with you, your involvement here. Uh, you, you described, you know, how you've sort of been going back and forth and, and your participation there. Uh, and in the book, it, you know, you really sort of bring out that individual level of relations and interactions. Uh, you talk about how you worked with parties and peacemakers from all sides. I wonder if you might be able to reflect with us on what that experience or what these experiences have taught you and how that level of engagement really influenced the book that you've written.
2: Yeah, I think that, um, I think you've really hit something there with that question um, because I, I think I went there with um, kind of some theories in mind and some, you know, things I'd learned in grad school that, that were going to, you know, guide me and what I discovered was I needed to listen and learn from people who lived in that context, what worked for them. Um, and so I think I came to kind of a balance of we need both the theories and the frameworks and the you know, guidance from other contexts and also the careful attention to this t- context too. Um, I think I, I remember an aha moment, which I actually do, I think uh, I included this in the book, uh, just, you know, a couple sentences on it. But for me, it was this aha moment of um, I had been taught that you never want a meeting to go on and on and on and on and on without giving people a break. And that, you know, if you're sitting for more than two hours, it's really time to have, you know, even a five minute stretch break, you know, let people go to the bathroom and come back. And, and so Paula Garb had, had deep relationships with Georgians and Abkhaz. She, she had studied the Abkhaz for her own dissertation um, and had really, you know, in-depth knowledge of that context and the culture. And she said to me, look, we're going to be at this meeting um, that I'm convening. Susan, you're the one who's got this training in how to run these kinds of dialogues, um, how to facilitate. Can you, you know, give me some hints along the way, point things out? And so I thought, well, gee, you know, what do I know to offer her? But man, when we got on and we kept talking and talking and it had been three hours and we still weren't taking a break and they were pushing lunch till later and still talking and everyone sitting in this small stuffy room, I passed her a note and said, maybe we should take a break now. And she kind of looked at it and looked at me like a puzzled look and then went back to the conversation and they talked some more and then I was like, wait a minute, we really need a break because I actually do have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> so I passed her another note and she, you know, paused the conversation enough that I could get up and leave, leave the room and no one else wanted to. Um, and, uh, later at lunch, you know, which we ended up having very late. She, she said, gee, that was such an incredible conversation. Why did you want to take a break? Um, and, and it came to, that was my aha moment that, you know, even though I had in my head that you never want to make people sit for more than two hours or so at a time. Um, there are occasions where you do. And for these folks, this was a really big conversation they were having, um, at the first of its kind since the war, and they were not going to get up for a cigarette break, even the, you know, the, the seasoned smokers, it was just, everyone was really focused on that conversation. Um, so if I'd been listening more, uh, to, you know, what they were going through the participants and what they wanted, um, I would have understood that, In general, we don't want to sit for too long in one place without taking a stretch break. But in this occasion where there's highly animated uh, engagement, um, it seemed uh, really um, intrusive to suggest a break. So... So that's that's a just a, a little anecdote that was part of my learning, and there were lots of aha moments along the way to realize that you know yes, there's real value in the guidance that comes from studying lots of contexts, and there's also value in knowing this particular context and this particular unique meeting where people didn't want to break.
1: So it's it's these kinds of interactions and that kind of really pushed you just sort of reach for this level of understanding that, right, we have all this theory, but then what about these people and the relationships and the lives that they lead?
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then also to, to get to know people, you know, we do have, you know, there were breaks in the, in the dialogues and not always the formal discussion. And so, you know, over meals or, or in the evening um, or taking a stretch break, walking around outside um, having informal conversation and getting to know folks, who are really taking risks to come to these sorts of dialogues and are um, making a choice. I realized it's not everybody who can do that. Um, and I became really interested in the stories of what brought people to do this and you know how could more people be encouraged and supported to do it. Um, but also just let's pause and acknowledge the remarkable people who take risks um, to build peace in their own communities.
1: Mm. So this is a, a good segue to our, the, the next question I was going to ask you um, to really sort of cut to the, the core contribution of the book. Right. So what does this idea of people-centered peacemaking mean and how might it differ from other models that are out there?
2: Yeah, that's a great question because, you know, I do acknowledge quite a few other models in the book um, and, you know, I have great respect for interactive conflict resolution models of all sorts. Um, and I think what, what this interact, what, what this people-centered approach takes is it brings a layer of the people focus to each of those other models. It's like putting on a, another set of lenses um, to see, you know, we can see the, um, the problem-solving workshop approach with a layer of the people-centered approach added to it. Um, or we can look at uh, you know any of these other models with, with the, the people-centered approach added, which means that, yes, we have the model in mind, and we also acknowledge the individual people and what they bring to the process, too. Um, and maybe they don't want to break that morning because <laughs> they want to all keep talking. Um, so the flexibility in the models to, to look at the real people who walk into the room and what they bring. I also, I'll just share another anecdote of... Um, you never would have heard it in a you know seen it and kind of you know here's the guidance for how to do um, a, a problem solving workshop. But but the Joe Campbellson, um, uh, based in Northern Ireland, brought brought in Moldovans and Transnistrians to Belfast, and had them in a very formal, beautiful, beautiful old building, um, having a, a very formal um, discussion of you know Moldovan Transnistrian relations and, and possibilities. Uh, for peace building there. And, And then we had a coffee break and he burst into song as a way of attracting people back into the room after the coffee break. And you never would have thought of that as like a, you know, a guidance of here's what we do in, in, in a particular model of peacemaking. Um, but bursting into song worked for him. It wouldn't work for me. <laughs> People might run away from it, but it worked for him. He had this big, beautiful, booming voice and he he was singing an Irish ballad and, and everyone came into the room from coffee break. Um, and so I think each of us just as a whole person need to, to put ourselves into the process and invite the, the uh, peacemakers in, in a process to put their whole selves into it too. Um, that humanizes us and it makes it real the the risks people are taking to to build peace Um, and I think it deepens the
1: the trust thank you for sharing that it's a really fun story though (laughs) Um, so going back and this this sort of involvement of individuals in you know these processes big or small dialogues you know far and wide goes back to some of the foundations of peace studies, right? The the big names like John Paul Lederach and Adam Curl, all of them sort of point towards what you articulate as how practice builds theory. Um, How did you evolve this idea and how did, how did you adapt it in in your work?
2: Yeah, this, this idea of practice builds theory has really been with me for, for decades. Um, I, Uh, I actually grew up, if you go back to the question of how did I get into this field, I grew up with learning from my grandmother who um, was a peace peace builder. She founded an international children's exchange organization that um, was based on the idea that um, we could build cross-cultural understanding uh, through children's engagement um, and certain kinds of constructive activities together in, in a summer camp setting. And she also studied it. She was this PhD in psychology who studied what works best in this context and how can we do it? And so this, this mix of um, being engaged in practice and then building from that to, to do better practice is something I grew up with kind of an, an awareness of and, and respect for. Um, and I found it you know, widespread in the conflict resolution field, as you say, there's, there's this you know, history of of action research, um, in, in conflict resolution. Um, and I feel like the work I'm doing in this book is kind of, um, recalling that and, and putting it for forth for, for the current generation of work. Um, we've had, I think, uh, the pendulum swings between, you know, engaged scholarship and more, um, uh, what we might call kind of the traditional, uh, scholarly endeavors. Um, and I think our field needs to move back and forth between those that, that the reflective practice part of the field, the engaged scholarship part of the field, evaluation work, uh, action research work, um, all of these, uh, are part of, um, building our knowledge of how, how to resolve conflicts, how to, how to build peace, how to prevent wars. Um, and, and we need to, not only be in the libraries, you know, studying, studying for, from theories, but also out in, out in the conflict zones and in the peace conversations and and learning from those as well.
1: Hmm. I really liked what you said earlier about the you know bringing the whole self and enabling and even respecting you know the the that's risky for people to do in, in a lot of contexts. Uh, and you just mentioned the phrase as well, uh, reflexive praxis. I wonder if you could. Sort of break that down for us and tell us you know, sort of personally what that has meant for you in the field but then also for you know these colleagues that you've worked with in uh, in the Georgia South Ossetia context
2: sure yeah so ref- I, I've you know um my colleague Dan Rothbart talks about reflex- reflective praxis um and the praxis of piecework work where the theory and the practice um, are engaged together I've focused as a kind of more of as a practitioner I've talked about it as reflective practice, um, which is the the phrase I I use as one of my my headings in the book, though I acknowledge Dan's work on on the reflective practice piece too. But for me, the reflective practice is as we're practicing conflict resolution, you know, as Georgians and South Ossetians and I are sitting around one evening after a day of dialogue and looking at what's on our agenda for the next day and how do we want to, you know, plan for future work together and what would be constructive – we're reflecting, we're reflecting on what's happened that day, what's happened over the previous months, what's possible for the future. Um, and doing that together, um, is for me, it's the best way to be informed by both, you know, as I talked before about it's both the theory and the guidance from other contexts and the local understanding and, and adaptation of what's needed for this particular moment. Um, and that reflective practice allows both of those to come together It allows us to learn from what's happening, you know, in that particular dialogue moment, you know, what kinds of things should we start the next day with? Uh, what, could, what would it make sense to focus on as, as a beginning of the next day? And then it also, what have we learned from here that we can share with others too? So, so it's, it's both um, learning about the particular context and particular process for strengthening that particular place. Uh, that particular dynamic, and then it's also what can we share to other places, Um, what do we have to offer the the rest of the conflict resolution field that we're learning from from our context. I think one of the things, you know, we've learned in reflective practice in this Georgian South Ossetian context is um, kind of documenting the kind of natural inclinations that the Georgians and Ossetians had when they first met after the August 2008 war we asked each other, is there anything to talk about? Is it worth meeting? And the resounding answer was, yes, we've got all these humanitarian catastrophes to deal with after the war, and we need each other to work on them. There were, 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 were issues that spanned the ceasefire line. And so that idea of, of a conflict resolution process focusing initially on humanitarian issues and then taking on very practical um problems that required cross ceasefire line communication. There's, you know, an irrigation channel that crosses the ceasefire line. There's, you know, a dam um, uh, that, you know, needed to be repaired that required work on both from both sides of the ceasefire line as well. So dealing with those sorts of practical problems um, is something that came out of our reflective practice as this matters. And this is something we can share with other contexts. Other places might also benefit from, from the idea that, you know, this model of uh, engaging in, in track two work or track one and a half work um, can be focused on particular practical problems as, as part of the phase of that.
1: Mm. I really like that, the question that was posed in that, you know, that sort of post 2008 moment, right? Is it worth talking? And I suppose mm-hmm. that really, this is probably the, the, you know, the, one of the larger points of your work is it sort of puts, you know, actors in the driving seat, so to speak, and, and recognizes their agency in resolving their issues, right, and sort of negotiating with each other, and it not being this kind of top-down who we are to deliver solutions to you. Um, so, I, without spoiling uh, any of the, you know, the, the stories and the, you know, hmm. these very illustrative inter- interactions in the book, I wondered if you might be able to share maybe just an interaction or relationship that you had with someone that really demonstrates these ideas of, you know, interactive, you know, people-centered approach.
2: You know, what comes to mind as you ask that um, is um, Dina Alborova, um, who passed away less than a year ago from COVID, um, she was such a lively person and so engaged in in you know really yeah, as a person her whole person was there in these interactive processes um and she took upon herself um i recall one particular meeting um again going building on that point i made about the practical problems um there was a, a Georgian georgino um dialogue where uh some Georgians who lived very close to the ceasefire line said, what is it with the irrigation channel? It's been full of garbage the last couple months. You know, what's happening? Why are you all throwing garbage in the irrigation channel from upstream on the South Ossetian side? Um, and she, you know, asked them about it and, you know, what kind of garbage are you seeing and what are you talking about and exactly where? And, and she got, you know, all the details she could. And she said, I'm going to go home and find out. And she did. She went home and she walked along that irrigation channel until she found a place where there was a um, cluster of, of homes and they said the garbage people have stopped collecting our garbage. And they don't know, you know, and it turns out that, you know, actually the gar- regular garbage service had somehow stopped going there. And, you know, someone else knew was was driving and they weren't stopping in that one down that one road. And, and those people were throwing garbage in the irrigation channel. And she got them to stop and she got the, the garbage service to start up again. And she just took care of that practical problem that didn't need to be an irritant between Georgia and South Ossetian relations. Um, and she got the garbage service picked up and the families were happy that they now had, you know, the regular service again. Um, and then the irrigation channel, uh, became cleaner and then people did some cleanup on it knowing that there wasn't going to be more garbage thrown in. Um, and that was her indi- as an individual who was ready to kind of take responsibility for I'll go home and I'll find out. Um, and it was just a matter of weeks before she got it all uh, you know, figured out so that next time people met, they were able to say, wow, you really fixed it. <laughs> um, and that the Georgians living right along that ceasefire line were able to say, yeah, wow, you know, we're meeting here just a few months later and the, the irrigation channel's clean there. Um, that's that's a, a, just an example that came to mind, um, kind of the contrast of how lively she was um, and how much she, you know, contributed with that small gesture. That was a trust building thing.
1: This really feeds into the the chapter, which I was probably one of my favourite ones because it sort of it does what it says on the tin, so to speak. Right, the people make peace um, section of the book, and you profile other individuals like uh, this person who you know make a contribution in their own way, in their own context, uh, and then dialogue is often a really big part of that contribution that's made. I wonder if you may be able, maybe able just to tell us your. Know, what the purpose and importance of dialogue is and what is needed for it to work?
2: Yeah, the dialogue process, um, it's it's really different than a debate. It's a process of um, building understanding and, and taking kind of a more holistic look at, at issues. Um, and rather than trying to convince someone to take your side or your, your perspective, it's a, a possibility to build together a more complete understanding. Um, and this group really developed a, a dialogue um, culture based on having to work initially on some of these humanitarian issues that required information from both sides of the ceasefire line. You know, if you're going to work on an irrigation channel that crosses back and forth, you need people on both sides to, to work on it and to, to the water flows and, and the, the understanding needs to be developed from both sides. So they developed this culture of dialogue and this idea that no one person has the whole story. Um, and that really influenced the ability to talk about, you know, some tricky issues, uh, from a perspective of maybe we all have something to learn here. An example that comes to mind, um, that I think is part of that chapter is, um, I mentioned Merab Chagoyev, um, who was at the time, you know, one of the uh, officials from the South Ossetian side, and was part of the um, what had been the, the what was called the Incident Prevention Response Mechanism—a fancy name for basically meeting every month along the ceasefire line to deal with local issues. And that was the idea: was you know not let anything local get out of hand and nothing restart the war. And we met at one meeting when. Um, that process had been closed down. The South Ossetians had had an objection to some political stuff happening and and was this too much of a, you know, NATO corner close kind of process and they had objected to participating and they said, no, we can't, can't do that anymore. And so the process hadn't met for a few months and um, we had a dialogue around, well, okay, they're not participating, but what can we do to make sure the war doesn't start again? You know, if you know, someone's hunting and they shoot and then that someone else thinks that's the war starting again and they shoot back, you know, what can we do to stop this from happening? Um, Any local issues happening across the ceasefire line, we don't want to escalate. And so we had a dialogue about, you know, what does it mean to have the ceasefire line there and people are living their lives on both different sides of it and, and things will happen that could escalate, you know, what are the ways to deal with those problems um, and we spent a few hours looking at well, what would be different mechanisms that could be created to to deal with uh, any potential issues. Um, and in the end, Meram Chagoyev said, "You know, we've talked and talked about everything, but I think I'll go home, and and I think you'll see the incident prevention response mechanism start up again." <laughs> and it wasn't that anyone was trying to convince him to do that. <laughs> we were just all really. Looking earnestly for what would be possible to do, you know, not that, but you know, anything that would be possible, and in the end, that particular approach seemed like the most realistic, effective approach. And he went home, and it started up again in a couple of weeks.
1: This sort of speaks to the, the next question I was going to ask you later on in the book. I think in the following chapter, you highlight the role of individual response or individual agency. In this, you know, process of you know people centered peacemaking, what why do you think that this is important to emphasize, and how is it then part of you know broader peacemaking?
2: I think it's important to emphasize because um, otherwise it can just be so depressing, <laughs> you know, to look at the official statements that come out of of you know leaders' mouths that that are just sometimes so antagonistic and so one-sided and and not allowing any possibility for how could there be any sort of um uh you know avoidance of war in the future that that that, to avoid that and to see that there is hope, you know, we need to look at it's not just one person that leads any any one country, but that there's a whole team and that the team is informed by a whole community. And that gives us hope. And it also gives us possibility. You know, John Paul Lederach talks about the moral imagination of being rooted in today's realities, but envisioning the future that that you want to build, you know, the peaceful future. Um, And I think that seeing the role of individuals in being able to build towards that makes it not just an impossible peaceful future, but an actual possible one. Maybe it will take, you know, many, many years and many, many people, but that it is possible because people can make choices Um, to change
1: things. Yeah, no, that that is really important. So uh, you then go on in the book as well to develop, um, you know, the power and role of networks and, you know, these relations within peace building, sort of, you know, layering on top of that individual agency. So I wonder if you could say a little bit more about what are the dynamics here when we're thinking about networks and and how they work, but then particularly... um, Given that networks are often an entry point for, you know, violent or a conflict-driven narratives, uh, and how does a people-centered approach respond to those more negative narratives?
2: Yeah, networks. Um, I, I feel like you know, networks are are living structures that are made up of people, and and networks change over time. Um, and, and people can change networks. though it's like steering a big, huge ship that, you know, you got to plan ahead and, and be patient about it to make, to make the shift in direction. But we, we have networks that like come together. For example, the caucuses forum was, was a network in the South caucuses of, of different peace builders from around the region. Um, and that took on different, uh, kinds of focuses over, over a period of time, um, from, from, you know, having done some some regional conflict resolution, confidence building measures together as a network to then being like a loose connection of people who, you know, kept in touch and shared information. And then in August 2008, when the war broke out, this network suddenly reactivated as really information sharing in real time, you know, how are you and are you still alive kinds of questions. Um, so the networks change in their focus over time and the people make can make that change. I've got a model of... Um, of I, you know, networks breathe <laughs> like like people do. That that you, they focus in on 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 a particular um, area of focus, and then more, as more people join and pull it in different directions, it becomes a broader sort of approach. Um, and these people are connected around multiple interests. And then something happens that people focus in on one particular interest, and it's like this accordion of the, the big breathing out goes into the into more focus, and then breathe out, and then more focus. So. So the networks are, are, um, not one set structure that stays the same all the time, but they're, they're living, um, collections of people connected with each other towards, you know, shared goals and those goals can adjust over time. Uh, and that's where people can make a difference in, in shaping the work of the networks. So it's, it's both, and it's both the the collective and the individual, um, that, that shapes, you know, the directions. And, And so your question about, um, narratives narratives can take hold in a network and, and really propagate um, broadly. And so can new ones, you know, if we want to complexify the narrative, destabilize a narrative that that's not constructive um, that can happen through a network um, where people are connected and are sharing meaning, making, we do a lot of making meaning together um, socially people do, and the networks are, are a way that we do that. Um, and so as someone shifts, the the narrative in a network that can, can, you know, help others see different perspectives as well.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. (coughs) Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
2: I feel like I went into theory there. Did that did get at your question?
1: <laughs> yes. No, it certainly did. Um, yeah, and I, I think that that notion of, of networks being, you know, as you said, sort of fluid, living things should open our, you know again that moral imagination to change right and that a narrative is not going to be guaranteed to stay the same forever right it's liable or you know susceptible to change right in positive ways as well as negative ways um so you give a lot of uh other examples in the book, beyond the context of Georgia and South Ossetia, I wonder if you might be able to share one of those with us that again demonstrates this people-centered approach.
2: Yeah, I do have um, I have a section on the um, process in Estonia, the several different processes in Estonia. Um, and, and I think that shows the role of multiple different people. Um, it's, not, it's not a person. <laughs> centered approach but people centered because it takes multiple people um, if you go back into the 90s in estonia um when estonia was newly you know uh, renewed independence for, from the soviet union um and there was a substantial russian population russian speakers in estonia um you know some of them had been born there and grown up there um during the soviet times uh and and estonia was setting about you know developing its Estonian identity, um, and there were real fears of would the Estonian language disappear. Um, and so some substantial conflict in Estonia around language laws and you know the role of the Russian-speaking community there. Um, and and how would they learn Estonian and to what extent would they have to learn Estonian and and how fluent and so forth. Um, and other issues around the, the kind of the future of Estonia and Estonia's identity as a country and is it a multi-ethnic country? Um, and so in the 90s, as Estonia was working that on uh, these issues out, there was a multiple different processes that um, engaged there. There was the kind of um, High Commissioner on National Minorities, Max Vanderstol, approach that kind of brought this official level, you know, consultations, um, brought insights from other places and and uh, suggestions about ways language laws could be um, constructive and and possible for, for all the communities involved um, and not present uh, such significant conflict um, dynamics as, as some of the initial ideas in Estonia had had really um, been alarming to the Russian speaking community. So, so Max Vanderstahl as an individual was really helpful. And then there was, you know, work by Vamik Vulkan and others um, who brought a psychodynamic approach and they brought key individuals from both the Estonian and Russian communities together to look at, you know, what are the hopes and fears and, you know, chosen traumas, chosen glories, bringing this psychodynamic approach, um, and helping these people talk to each other about, about um, their kind of understanding of the current dynamics and the possibilities for the future. Uh, And then together those key individuals were able to look at ways of constructively building an Estonia that would be, um, you know, safe for the Estonians and the Estonian language and also safe for the Russian speaking community to, um, you know, be, be part of, of, of Estonia moving forward, um, in ways of honoring the the history of Estonia in, in the context of its changing, um, current dynamics or in the nineties, that was the approach anyway. So, so that's an example that's, you know, away from the, the Georgian South Ossetian context, which, which I go back to so frequently in the book, um, but brings out, um, the dynamics of individual people making a difference there, with their individual analyses of, you know, these were people who were um, living the Estonian-Russian context there, and they were able to reflect on their own experiences and and pull out what could be possible f- for a constructive future for Estonia.
1: Mm. So, Russia and Russian peoples and communities across this region are, you know, often sort of pop up in the in the work that you've described in the book here. Um, given the people-centered approach, I wondered if maybe we could shift gears a little bit here and if you'd be able to say anything about sort of the, the state of Russian peace building and, and peace activism, because, you know, oftentimes in you know, big international discourses, these you know, folks that are working to build peace locally kind of get disappeared right, mm-hmm. in, the, in the narrative. So I wonder if you might be able to say a little bit about the state of Russian peace building and peace activism.
2: Yeah, well this is quite a question right now as, you know, we're doing this interview in um in April of twenty twenty two and the war in, in Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is is continuing. Um and there's you know, this is a question I've been I've you know, people have asked me like this people is centered approach. Well, what can people do when there's, you know, these big structures? And there's this question, right? What can an individual um peace builder would be peace builder do when they're in a society where they can't even say that this is a war happening, right? So the Russian, Russian civil society is facing such um, restrictions. Media is facing such restrictions, social media, access to internet or particular internet sites anyway. Um, so right now is a really tough time to look and see, you know, the role of individual agency um, in, a, in a society where people face such tough restrictions. But even so, we do see Individual agency. We see, you know, there's um, so many stories of Russians who are speaking out against the war, um, and they're getting arrested, and they're they're serving time in jail, um, but they're still speaking out against the war anyway. Um, so, so I guess I would just say, yes, I, you know, the critics who point out these big state structures that you know make it all but impossible for for individuals to make a difference and yet there are individuals who are anyway you know standing even you know people have been very creative in their attempts to speak out against the war um you know standing with you know a blank piece of paper (laughs) uh and that can be seen as a protest also if if the meaning is you know that you're going to say you know no war um on your piece of paper but you can't say that because that's been um yeah censored uh, so, yeah, the state of how you take a people-centered approach to that is, um, it's pretty depressing to see, you know, people, but, but there are people who are still standing up and, and um, protesting the war and then getting put in jail.
1: Yeah, no, there's a, I mean, there are demanding images that sort of, you know, came and went in, you know, international news media of, you know, protests in, in Russia, but it's important not to forget, right, that there's, you know, dynamics and agencies on on all sides, um, so just to develop that a little bit more and to think about the Ukrainian context as, as much as you're, you feel you're able to, uh, how transportable has this model of, you know, you know people centred uh, or pers- people centred peace building been in Ukraine, given that, you know, what's happening now is not the only time, right, we've had, you know, a, a good few decades of, of difficulty and trouble in the country so I, I guess what I'm asking is uh, how how usable or how has this model been used prior to the current crisis and how might it then be applicable in the future or the near future hopefully?
2: yeah I am I think that you know at the current moment where there's such a crisis and you know missiles flying and and shots ringing on people dying um hiding in basements and and so forth i think this is not the time for let's have a dialogue and imagine the peaceful future (laughs) um because people are really you know just in a life or death situation of how can i hide from 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 the bombs or how can i escape and, and not not be there um but i do believe that this war will end and the fighting, the, the, you know, the military action, the, the, the missiles and the bombs and and so forth will stop. Um, and at that point what gives me hope is that there was such a strong Ukrainian Russian, um, community of, of peace builders that were already working before, um, before the, the recent fighting and there were people who'd been bridging across the Ukrainian-Russian divide in, you know, in Eastern Ukraine um, for years. Uh, and they had built a really strong civil society network um, that was building understanding. Um, and, you know, there were issues to work through between the, the Russian-speaking community and Ukrainian-speaking communities in, in Ukraine, and they were doing it. Um, and so I have great faith that for those that survive this horror that they're going through now, um, there will be a really strong basis for Ukraine rebuilding after the war. Um, and, and Ukraine, you know, as I understand, so many of the Russian-speaking uh, population of Ukraine have been, you know, really radicalized against Russia by, by the onslaught, the military onslaught. Um, and I think that, that Ukraine will have, you know, quite a lot of civil society um, actors ready to, uh, rebuild relationships and, you know, re- do, do the trauma healing that comes after war and the community building, um, for, for the communities that have gone through, through these, these horrors. Uh, and then I think there will be, you know, the longer term work of, um, not only within Ukraine, but then, you know, building reasonable, um, secure, uh, relationships more broadly in in the regional context as well.
1: And that's very, very long term. Yeah, thank you for that. So uh, we're going to sort of round up, um, you know, round off our time together here. There's a couple other, um, perhaps somewhat unrelated questions that I wanted to to chat with you about. Um, So the book is published uh, open access. I wonder if you could tell us a little about your consideration in making that choice.
2: Yeah, I am um, a big advocate of open access um, because, you know, we're the field of conflict resolution. We're, we're not about, you know, keeping secret ideas behind a paywall. <laughs> we're about really sharing what works for building peace. Um, how can we avoid wars? You know, if, if there's any knowledge that's sitting in library shelves that could be useful to, to people out there trying to, to make peace, let's share it. <laughs> Um, so, so I'm working at here at George Mason university, we have, um, the better evidence project that's really focused on putting evidence of what works out there in an open access format for, um, sharing with people or anywhere in the world who have internet access to be able to access, um, you know, case studies of where different peacemaking approaches have worked case studies of what hasn't worked case studies of, you know, different theoretical frameworks that could inspire work. Um, you know, learning from another context can inspire someone in their own context, what what might work. So, so I'm really enthusiastic about how we can build, um, more open access approaches. And I hope, I hope people will enjoy reading the book for free. (laughs) It is a free ebook, you know, (laughs) downloadable from, from the, the Taylor and Francis, the Rutledge websites. Um, and, And I hope that other people will share their work in open access formats, because I Mm. think that's, you know, we've got people building peace all over the world, and not all of them have access to, you know, major libraries that that can Mm. connect to all these resources.
1: Yeah, definitely. So uh, on that note, and this, you know, the book's just recently published, and so you, you may be sort of at the early stage in this, but have you considered or thought about translation of the book, given, you know, this really important issue of access?
2: Yes, I um, am very excited to work towards translation of the book. Um, I asked the publisher if I could keep um, Russian and Georgian and South Ossetian or an Ossetian language rights to the book, um, and then let me have Ossetian and Georgian rights. (laughs) but the Russian ones they kept. Um, but I, I, you know, I'm hopeful that the publisher will, will move towards a Russian language version and I'm actively exploring um, possibilities of a Georgian and possibly even Ossetian language versions too.
1: Excellent. Well, that's, that's really exciting. Uh, so, yeah,
2: no, I feel I like this, wanted... this book came from, you know, the experience of Georgians and Ossetians, and they need mm. to have it in their own languages too.
1: Mm. So, I wondered, you know, now that this book sort of in, in some ways sort of sits at the top of this sort of wealth of experience and these relationships and, um, you know, observations that you've, you've gathered over time, I wondered, given you now at this point, what are the future steps for this project? Is it more sort of contingent on your ongoing relationships or do you have anything else planned for this kind of work that you're doing?
2: I am... Um... Well, I think that this is a sensitive time for the Georgian-Ossetian relationship because of the dynamics with Russia and Ukraine. Um, from the Georgian perspective, there's a, a fear of, you know, are we next? <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry. Um, so so from the Georgian perspective, there's a fear of, you know, are we next? Is is Russia going to invade Georgia <laughs> more? Um and from the Ossetian perspective, there's a fear of is Georgia going to try to take Ossetia back, South Ossetia back during this period of um, uh, Russia's military is busy in Ukraine. So, so there's fears on both sides and heightened tensions on both sides. And so now is the time to keep communication open, um, which is something I'm trying to support uh, just in an informal channels of keeping communication open um, and then in terms of future steps, uh, there are committed people in in the Georgian and the Ossetian communities who want to see whatever future is built be built nonviolently. And so whatever you know, transitions from the current arrangements would be taken nonviolently um, is something that people are committed to, to really encouraging. So I want to support, support them however I can.
1: Mm, excellent. I wondered if there are any other projects or anything else that you're working on that you'd like to share with us before we finish up?
2: Well, you know, it's exciting to have a book done and to have a little space to think about what's next. Um, and the Better Evidence Project and open access resources is something I'm really passionate about. Um, we're building an an evidence to action program here here at the Carter School um, at George Mason, where practitioners and theorists and you know we bring evidence to encourage to in, in, you know, inform practice, and we bring practice to inform the, the the building of more evidence and that kind of cycle of um, learning from each other and putting things into action and then learning more from that. So I'm excited about that. Um, and I'm also getting really interested in, you know, I've got one chapter in this book that's about practice builds theory. I'm really interested in methodology in our field and how can we learn more how to do better at piecework because it's, I feel like that's a moral imperative to do the best we can. Um, yeah, to avoid the horrors of war and and to build just relationships, um, peaceful future, we need to know how to do that, and that means we need to learn how to learn. So I'm excited more about some methodological innovations, particularly around the the practice builds theory approach.
1: Mm. Oh that's fantastic. Uh, so you mentioned at uh, George Mason that there there's a collection that's sort of being assembled is that accessible to folks through the website now?
2: Or? Yeah, yeah, actually okay. it is. We've got the Better Evidence Project and I can Better tell you Better Evidence Project. The, uh, right. So perhaps Better I can get you a link, you from a link you to and it. We can Yeah. Share that on the yeah.
1: on the site here. Um, it's so b- last,
2: bep.carterschool.gmu.edu. That's it.
1: The last question I was going to ask you was often, you know, here at the New Books Network, we ask if there are any, any media or any books, films, or even plays that have influenced you that you might recommend to our listeners.
2: Wow. Okay, that's great. I am, um, I'm reading now my colleague, Mark Gopin, has a book on compassionate reasoning, changing the mind to change the world it's it's also just out this year oxford university press um and i find that he does a lot of that practice builds theory he's learning by doing and i appreciate that in in that book that i'm reading now um i also go back to john paul Lederach's uh book the moral imagination um and others of his work but that one in particular brings a lot of the learning by doing, you know, he, he reflects on his experience and shares insights from that experience. Um, so yeah, those would be two, I would mention one from, from years ago and one from, yeah. from this year.
1: Excellent. Well, yeah. So I'm going to look up Mark's book now because that does sound fascinating. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time uh, again. um Thank you, Susan, for being with us and your book that's out this year that's available, Open Access is Interactive Peacemaking, A People-Centered Approach. Thanks again, and um, we'll leave it there.
2: Thank you so much, Chris. Great talking with you.